Well, it's good to see you. Good morning. I encourage you now to take your Bibles. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John, chapter 14. Today we come to our sixth message of our I Am series. We've been looking throughout the Gospel of John for the last several weeks. Uh, there are seven, eight, depending on who counts, but seven that we're looking at, I Am statements in the Gospel of John, where Jesus makes seven distinct claims about himself. And we've looked at those. Uh, Trey, one of our elders, kicked this series off with uh, I am the bread of life from John 6. And then we looked at John 8 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Then we looked later in John 10 where Jesus says, I am the door. The week after that where he also says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. Last week, we continued into John chapter 11 where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Today, we'll be in John chapter 14 where he claims, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And next week, newlywed Kale Benefield will preach uh, the last of this mar uh, marriage series. Uh, sorry, brother. Uh, maybe he'll preach a series on marriage, uh, but he will conclude this series on the I Am statements as we look at I Am the True Vine from John chapter 15. Uh, let's hear from God's Word this morning. Let's stand as we honor the reading of it. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever says, whoever has seen me, or whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father, would you now open our eyes and ears and hearts, that they may be attentive to your word, instructed by it, and that we would be transformed to your glory, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When you hear John chapter 14, they're probably quite familiar to you, even if you've not been in a church very much. Because you've probably heard them recited at many funerals. And certainly that's an appropriate place for such a passage to be quoted. 
But these words were first uttered by Jesus to his disciples who were experiencing an extraordinary amount of emotional stress. Jesus, if you go back to John 13, has just shared Passover with them, and he announces to them at this gathering of his disciples that one of them, Judas, would betray him, and another, Peter, would deny him. So just imagine, gathering with a group of friends, this teacher that has been leading you and instructing you, you share this, this amazing meal together that is so filled with, with imagery and symbolism that they're not even understanding its extent. And then all of a sudden, Jesus turns to you and says, two of you are basically going to turn your back upon me. One will betray me and one will deny me. And so you can imagine how the evening ended. The disciples were, were, were quite a mess. You can imagine the state that they were in that evening, an emotional wreck. Their hearts must have been greatly troubled by what they heard. So Jesus says, let, your, let not your hearts be troubled. They were afraid. They were anxious. All of these things were developing fast. Not only has Jesus announced to them that one would betray and one would deny, he's also been telling them along the way that he's going away, that he's leaving, he's departing. So you can just imagine the, the anxiety that filled the hearts of the disciples this evening. We're told in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25, that anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. I think the disciples were experiencing the reality of Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25 that night. They were filled with anxiety and fear, they, they, inward turmoil taking place in their heart. But Jesus now in John chapter 14 seeks to give them a good word. Friends, we're not in the same position the disciples were that night, but we know that we too experience things in life that test us. We too know that there are times and seasons even in our life that, that our hearts grow troubled. We grow fearful and anxious. So what is our response when that happens? What are we called to do? I think that that as we look at this passage today, we can be instructed by what Jesus says to his disciples when they were going through this time of distress and trouble. In fact, he, he lays it out pretty clearly in verse 1. He, he gives them this imperative. It's kind of a twofold imperative. He tells them one thing not to do and one thing to do. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus, at the very beginning, he understands the trouble that they're going through, the anxiety that the, that's filling them. And he says, listen, don't let your heart, or don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be bothered by what you're hearing. Rather, believe in God and also in me. But he doesn't just say, don't worry, believe in God, right? He doesn't just leave them at verse 1. He goes on to give them a couple of reasons why they should not worry, why they should not be troubled, and why they should believe in God, and namely in Christ. So this is a good word. This is, this is 
Jesus, what we're, what we're watching here is Jesus really serving as a pastor of sorts to these troubled hearts in his midst. And right in the midst of it all, we come to that sixth I am statement that we'll look at in just a few moments. So I want us to look this morning, the rest of our time together, at, the, at what I would say, depending on how you divide this passage, two reasons why Jesus should be the focus of troubled hearts. Two reasons why Jesus should be the focus of trouble, troubled hearts. And they're, they're super easy. When I, when I tried to, to, to summarize what's going on in this passage, why, why is he saying this? You know, it, if, you, if you encounter someone that's going through a difficult time and you just simply say to them, don't be troubled, just believe in God. Those are true statements that they need to do. But even more helpful when they're giving good reasons why they ought to trust him. And so we're going to look at those reasons today that I think apply even to us. And we can just summarize them in two, two broad ways and we'll go unpack them. First of all, he has secured our future. That is reason number one as to why we should trust him. And he second has empowered our present. Those are the two reasons he gives in this text. Now we're going to kind of unpack them a bit. He has secured our future and he has empowered our present. These are the reasons why we ought to trust him with our troubled hearts. Okay? All right, let's look at that as we seek to uh, unpack this a bit. Let's look first reason together that he has secured our future. You know, as Jesus observes the ever-increasing anxiety that his disciples were experiencing, the inner turmoil within their hearts, he, he, he seeks to give them hope. He wants them to understand that he's not leaving them in this state to be troubled. Now, we know that trouble often comes to us, and indeed it tests us, doesn't it? We know that trouble often exposes things in our hearts that, that we need to see. It, it will often, for example, expose things that we're truly trusting in. So when we grow troubled, when we grow anxious, afraid, what's happening is that we're demonstrating where our true allegiance and our true confidence is resting. So Jesus is wanting to help replace their misplaced confidence with a true and right confidence and true and right hope. And he does that very, very good in this, in this passage. You know, all of the disciples could see at this point was the immediate situation. They'd followed this guy for three years. He's now told them he's leaving, and two of them are, are, are basically going to deny him, betray him. So just imagine, just imagine if you were sitting there that evening. So fear and anxiety had to be addressed. Jesus, therefore, speaks in or, in, into their lives to help their perspective be properly developed, to help their confidence be rightly shaped. He needed them to see beyond their present struggle so their hearts would not be troubled. Two things he tells them about their future. First of all, he tells them, should not be troubled and believe in God, first of all, because he has prepared a place for us. Jesus says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus was not just leaving to leave. He was not bored of their company. He was not just saying, well, I think I'll move on to the next best thing. 
No, rather, he had a very sovereign design in his departure. And so he was moving on and going ultimately back to heaven to prepare for his followers a place. When you think about heaven, heaven is described in a variety of ways in the Bible. It's described as a kingdom, as an inheritance, as a country, even as a city. And here in verse 2, Jesus describes heaven as a house. In my Father's house are many rooms. I know that the King James translation and some of the older hymns often use the word mansions. In my Father's house are many mansions. But the word here literally is dwelling place. It's dwelling place. So rooms or dwelling place is a, is a good reflection of what this is trying to get at here. In my Father's house, there has been provision made for you. You have a room in the Father's house. The focus here is not so much on the lavishness of each room or dwelling place, although heaven is described in quite lavish terms in other texts. Rather, the focus here is on the fact that ample room has been made in the Father's house for those who follow Jesus. This idea of dwelling place is a theme that we could, we could trace all throughout the Bible. Think about that for a minute. In Eden, in the garden, Adam and Eve created. They're in the image of God, enjoying the fullness of God's provision in creation. This is pre-fall. They were enjoying the fullness of God's presence. God was dwelling with them in a perfect relationship, but then they rebelled against their perfect creator. They sinned against him, and that fellowship was now broken. The dwelling of God with man was now, was now fractured because of sin. And so what does God do? We go all the way through the Old Testament, get to the New Testament, and we know that Jesus comes, the Son of God is sent into the world to dwell among us. Why did he do that? So that we could be reconciled to God, so that we can dwell with him again. And we get to Revelation, there at the end of Revelation, in chapter 21, verse 3, we're told, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It's a beautiful picture all the way throughout the scriptures of, of how God is, is choosing to dwell even with his broken and sinful people. So he seeks to redeem them and rescue them and bring them to himself. Jesus is saying that even here in this text. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Notice what he says in verse three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This is important because I think sometimes we get hung up on verse 1, and not get to verse 3, especially with the mansions translation. We just want our mansion. How big is it going to be, right? We get all thinking about the, the decorations and, and all of those kinds of frivolous things. Not so frivolous in heaven. God will give us more than we could ever fathom. But I want you to notice here the emphasis of the text is not necessarily on the fact that there's room, although there will be, but when you, when Jesus has made adequate provision for us, notice verse three, I will come again and will take you to myself. Where I am, 
you may be also. What he's emphasizing here is the, the relationship, the dwelling place of God with man in heaven forever. I think sometimes when, when we talk to other people, maybe this has been you, sometimes we get the impression that people really want heaven. And it's not that big of a deal if Jesus is there or not. Can I just ask you that simple question? Would you want heaven without Christ? I would submit to you today, if that's what you want, then that's not truly heaven. It's not heaven. Great Anglican J.C. Ryle said it this way, it is the very essence of heaven that Christ will be there. A heaven without Christ would not be the heaven of the Bible. You see, the departure of Jesus was to see that these heavenly preparations were made so that they could ultimately and eternally live in the presence of Jesus forever. And this is the hope that he was giving them. He was saying, don't be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then once that's finished, I'm coming to get you and you're going to be with me. Friend, does that kind of hope stir your heart? Do you, do you know that very hope and promise? I'll just ask you, even as you live your life, if we could ask people around you, what kind of hope do people see in you? Do they see you longing for and clinging to this heavenly preparation, this provision that Jesus is making for all of those who follow him? Do they see that that is your great hope? Or do they see in you a hope that is, that is somehow rooted and trans, or, or, or fixed upon this, this world in materialistic things? What kind of hope do people see in you? Friends, what, 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 kind, of, what kind of Christian or what kind of brother or sister are you to your other brothers and sisters? When you think about others, we know that we have friends and brothers and sisters in, in the Lord that, that go through troubled times. Their hearts do grow anxious. They, drew, they do grow fearful, just as we all do from time to time. What kind of friend are you to them? What kind of hope are you speaking into their lives? Are you reminding them that though their hearts grow troubled, that they should not let their hearts grow troubled, but rather believe in God because he is making ample, adequate provision for them. Are you pointing them to that? Are you even in a position in others' lives to be a voice of hope? Or do you can just kind of stick to yourself? This is how God has so designed the body of Christ to work, that we're to speak truth into each other's lives. What way are you placing your hope too much in this world? Or friend, maybe, you be, maybe you're here today and, and, and the reality is, is that you, you don't have hope for the future. If we really had to get down to the, to the, to the reality of your own heart, you would, you would say at the end of the day that you don't have hope for the future. You're just merely hoping the present goes well. 
Can you, can, can you confidently say that your future is secure? Can, can you say that, friend? Because if you can't, you need to understand that what Jesus has done in his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his victorious resurrection as he defeats sin, hell, and the grave once and for all, and he ascends to the right hand of the Father and has promised to come again, that he's done all of this as a full, complete accomplishment so that if you would trust in him, you would be saved. That is your hope. You can have this hope. You can have this security for the future if you would not trust in yourself, but if you would trust in Christ. And look to him today if you do not know this hope and rest in this great provision he has given. Because the future is secure for those who trust in Christ. Jesus says, were it not so, would I have told you? If this wasn't a reality, Jesus would be a liar. He has made a place for us. But in order to get to that place, we need to understand the way. He's made a way. After Jesus explains the rationale for his departure, Thomas responds. Now look at this, verse, verse 4. Jesus says, Jesus speaking here, he says, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas is like, hey, uh, Actually, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And this is where Jesus responds with that verse that many of us know so well. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Thomas poses the question, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus responds with the answer, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So right here, now we see the context behind this great sixth statement of John's gospel. This statement, by the way, that has been one of the most cherished statements and despised statements that have ever been uttered. You know that John 14, 6 is one of the most glorious truths embraced and at the same time, one of the most detested statements. The exclusivity of this statement is obvious. We're gonna unpack it some more in a moment, but, but even look at what he goes on to say. I mean, he, he says quite clearly, I am the way. I am not a way, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he goes on, if, by the way, if you had known me, you had known my Father. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Jesus comes in the flesh to reveal to them provision and presence of God. And he goes on in verses 8 through 11 to say very clearly that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip, verse 8 <laughs> After Jesus says what he does about, he, he if, you know the, if you know me, you know the Father. And Philip says, Lord, just show us the Father and that's enough. And Jesus, in a bit of rebuke here, says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Friends, I just, stop right there with that, with that response from Jesus. 
Jesus has just made crystal clear who he is and what he's done. And Philip says, actually, if you'll just show us something more, that, that, that'll be sufficient. And Jesus says, have you been with me so long that you do not know me? And let, let that just be a reminder to us that you may have been in close proximity to Jesus for an extended period of time, and you still may not truly know him. You may have gathered with God's people regularly for a season. You may be able to say true things about who Jesus is. You may even sing praise and kind of feel warm and fuzzy inside. And yet not truly know the reality of Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And have you truly trusted in this Savior Let's pick back up in verse 6. Jesus says here, I am the way, truth, and the life. He's not a way. He's the way. And, and again, this is an offense to the, to the world. You go out and tell the world that there's only one way to God, and you're not going to gain many friends. We live in a world that says everyone's way and everyone's truth are valid. Your way is good for you, and my way is good for me. So just follow your own way. God's a God of love, and at the end, he'll have us all home. Friend, when you really begin to think about that kind of coexist worldview, that all paths are valid, it doesn't take you very long. If you really think about that, how silly that is. And there are many other things in life that, that don't work that way. Not only is it silly, it's enormously arrogant. Because what such a worldview does, maybe with good intentions, although that could be questioned, what such a worldview does, the worldview that says all paths are valid, everyone's way, everyone's truth is good for them. If it's good for them, it's good for them. It's not press them. If we if, if we claim that kind of worldview, it is an arrogant claim because what happens is we are making the statement that, that we're basically saying God no longer needs to be the authority speaking truth into this world. We now are the authority of what is good and right. So what we do when we claim that all paths are valid or we deny that Jesus is the only way to the Father, if you deny that or you claim some other reality, what you're doing is you're seeking to dethrone God and place your own wisdom onto the throne. It is called idolatry, and it will be deadly to you. You know, we live in a world of GPS, and my ambition for life, among other things, is to teach kids how to read a map. We're too dependent upon our mobile devices. You just want to go somewhere, you type in the address, and then what happens? This, this is where people get nervous. They like pops three options up, doesn't it? You go this way, it's going to be a toll. You go this way, it's going to be five minutes shorter. If you go this way, it's 20 miles longer, but you can get there quicker. So then you're having to decide, and then if you're really hip on the phone, you can kind of zero in and see the red where there's traffic, right? Okay, that way's not going to be actually quicker after all. I'm going to go this way. Friends, this is not how the gospel works. There's only one way. 
There's only one path to God. There's only one path to God and Jesus is that way. He's paid all the tolls. He's made all the provision and he's made that path crystal clear. You know, in John chapter six, after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he walks on water, he had quite a following. You know what he does next in John chapter 6? I know we're not in John 6, we're in John 14, but it's the same gospel. If you go back and read that, Jesus does these miracles. He feeds the 5,000, he walks on water, and then he starts teaching. He teaches the text that Trey preached, I am the bread of life. And if you read that, it's a long chapter. If you read the, the entirety of John chapter 6, what Jesus does is he's teaching how he's the bread of life, how he really is, is the way. He's the one that can provide for them life. And after he begins teaching these difficult things in, in verse 66, it's a long chapter, he says, or we see there, John, John writes this, after this, many, have dis, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, many of them, they weren't truly disciples. They were just in for the show. So Jesus said to the 12, his disciples, all these people are leaving he looks at his 12 followers, or his 12 disciples, he says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter, for once in his life, says something good. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where shall we go? You're it. Peter may not have understood a lot of things at this point, but he nails it there. He gets it right. Jesus is the way to God. There are no other ways. You know, there are often things, and, and I know sometimes we even, we will say that, but we act differently. I, I, I don't have to, to unpack different religions today for us to understand that that sometimes even we as Christians and even those gathered in the church sometimes buck up against this a little bit. For example, let me give you several examples of, of, of good things that we are called to do that, that sometimes we make as another way to God. Social justice is one of those. Christians must be speaking to matters of justice and injustice. And if we don't, shame on us. If anyone needs to be speaking about matters of injustice, it ought to be Christians. We ought to be engaged in social justice for the good of society and the glory of God. But listen, social justice is not the gospel. It will not save you. No matter how many mouths you feed or bodies you clothe or how many times you speak about the problems of immigration or the criminal justice system that's a wreck, all of things that need a Christian voice, even if you get those things good and you're doing, making headway in those areas, and that's not going to see you to God. We ought to do those things as a fruit, as a reflection of our faith, not as a, as a, as a pathway to God. We can talk about involvement in all kinds of good ministries. Ministry itself is not the way, it's the fruit. Formalities, I think this could be a huge problem. Church attendance, church membership, 
baptism, communion, all important parts of the Christian life, but none of these things can save you. If you think that you're going to go to heaven today because you came to church, you're deceived. Jesus is the way to heaven. Believe in him, trust in him, follow him. And I guarantee you, you want to be in church. Another sermon for another day. Those who don't want to gather regularly with the body of Christ, I'm not sure that they got the gospel right. But church itself, gathering itself does not make you holy. Family. Think about family. I mean, if you have the privilege and benefit and blessing of growing up in a Christian home, praise God for that. Praise God that you had a godly mother and father and grandfather and grandmother. But listen, mama can't get you to heaven. Your mama's faith or your daddy's faith or your grandparents' faith doesn't do anything for you regarding salvation. Only Christ. Jesus and Jesus alone is the way. And friend, he is the way for everyone. No matter who you are, male or female, young or old, black or white, American or Brazilian, whoever you are, rich or poor, all of us have hope in the same Savior, Jesus. And I wonder if you're here today and you're maybe like Philip a bit. You know Jesus is a good thing, but you're still holding out for something more. Yes, Jesus is important. Yes, we ought to worship him. Yes, he ought to, we ought to follow him. But, but is he really enough? Yes. He's enough. He's the only sufficient savior there is. Because of who he is and what he did, it makes him the only source of saving hope. He is the way. And by the way, he goes on to say he is the truth and the life. He is the truth because he embodies the truth of who God is. He didn't say, by the way, I've come to tell you the truth, although he does. But he says, I came because I am the truth. He's the life. We looked at that last week from uh, John chapter 11, where he says, I am the resurrection and life. He is the source of true life. And so because he is the embodiment of truth and because he has made way to give life, which, which therefore it makes him the way. Because he's the life, because he's the truth, it makes him the only way to God. So if you go all the way back to our starting point, the reason the disciples and by extension, us, can have hope, even in troubled times, is because of what Jesus has secured for us. You can have hope. You cannot grow troubled because Jesus has made a place for you. Not only that, he's coming again to take you there. Listen, we could summarize it this way. The reason we don't have to be troubled is because Jesus was troubled for us. There's a lot of trouble in this world. And Jesus took it all upon his own shoulders so that you and I, although we know that we'll go through afflictions and 
grief and difficulty, we truly don't have to grow troubled because he was troubled for us so that we can know the peace of God for all of eternity. So he secured our future, but also, number two, he's empowered our present. When you begin to look at verses 12 through 14, especially verse 12, this verse is, is a, it, it's crazy. Jesus says, after he talks about their future, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. That's pretty wild. Not only that, and greater works than these will he do. Time out. <laughs> do, you, do you just hear what Jesus, what Jesus said? Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Think about that for a moment. How in the world will Jesus' followers do greater works than Jesus? I mean, that sounds heretical. And it would be if Jesus hadn't have said it, right? I mean, that's, that, that, that's astonishing. I mean, immediately we begin to think of all that Jesus did. He healed the sick. He fed 5,000. He walks on water. He cast out demons. He made the blind to see. Just last week, he raised a dead man. That's what we're thinking, right? And Jesus just said, you're going to do the works that I do and greater works. How can we do, how can you beat raising a dead man? See, that's, that's kind of how our thought pattern goes. But, but, but what we need to stop and realize is that's not exactly what Jesus is saying. Greater works doesn't mean more works, that we'll somehow do more things than Jesus nor does it mean that we'll do things more spectacular than he did. Look again at the text. I think we see the text in its entirety, we begin to understand what Jesus is saying. There's a clue here that helps us make sense of it all. And it comes at the end of verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because, you grammar freaks, that's an important word, because. I am going to the Father. Now, later on in chapter 14, and even in verse 16, we see that one of the reasons he's going to the Father was so that he could send the Holy Spirit to come and empower his people, embody even, live within his people. So Jesus says, you'll do greater works, because I'm going to the Father. The reason that the works become greater is not because they're more glorious or, or, or somehow more in number than what Jesus did, but rather it's greater because it now involves the fullness or the completion of the gospel. Jesus is speaking to disciples pre-cross and pre-resurrection. And he's saying what you're going to be part of is a Holy Spirit-filled mission that's going to, 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 to be about the total message of the gospel, life, death, and resurrection. He's not done those things yet. Now, when he does that, he then ascends to his father, sends his spirit, and says, that's the message you're going to preach, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which is the only way to the father. And so in that way, the work becomes greater because now we have a complete message that involves the work of his atonement, the work of his resurrection. 
And by the time we get to the end of the gospels in the book of Acts, we see the followers of Jesus now in a position to point to or to proclaim this finished work of the gospel of what Jesus came to do. Not only that, the scope of this work not only is now local, but it becomes global. So in this way, now the followers of Jesus have a full message that they can point back to and say, it's done, it's finished. And the scope of this message is to be global. Go therefore make disciples of all nations. Just seeing if some of you are still awake. All nations. So really the contrast that Jesus is making is not between Jesus's works and his disciples' works. Rather, the works that he's talking about is between the works that he came to perform while here in the flesh and the work that he will perform through his people. So when you begin to step back and you realize what Jesus is saying, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Why? Because I've secured your future and I have given you a mission. I've given you a purpose. You don't have time to lay around and whine and, and grow fearful and worry about all these things. You are there to go preach good news. You have greater work to do. You have a mission to fulfill. You have a message to proclaim. You have disciples to make. You have nations to engage. There's no time to be troubled. And the more you grow troubled, the more paralyzed you become and the more ineffective you become. Fulfilling our present responsibility in the Great Commission is one way you address your troubled heart. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. You have anxiety, you have fear, you have trouble. Go make disciples. Understanding that as you do, that Jesus has made preparation for you and for all of those who will ever trust him. Friends, we have no time, really, to be troubled because we have much work to accomplish. Because if it is true, if it is true that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and he's going to prepare a place for those who trust in him, then there's an entire world that needs to hear. Friends, we might have circumstances that often weigh us down and even distract us, but Jesus has made a place that is far greater and given us a mission that is far better than we can fathom. Life and circumstances will give us every reason to grow fearful, to grow worried, to despair, to be anxious. But praise God, Jesus has given us a good word here, right? Anxiety in a heart weighs a man down, but a good word makes him glad. You may feel weighed down this morning. Just hear the good word of Christ. He's gone and made a, a place for you. And he secured it through his finished work. It's not even something you've got to work for. You don't have to work for it. He's paid it all. He's, he's done it all. He's worked for it all. He's done everything needed for you to inherit that wonderful provision that he is making. And now he's, all he's saying is as a result of that, go tell others. 
Go do the greater work that I have given you to do. Go forth and make disciples. Preach the fullness of the gospel to your neighbors, to your coworkers. Go preach it to the ends of the earth. Friends, Jesus has given us every reason to live in hope. After all, he's gone ahead to prepare a place for us in his father's house. We get a place in the father's house. We get a place in the king's residence. And we did nothing to earn it. It's a gift of his grace. And he says, in the meantime, as you wait, go tell others about this place and go tell others about the way to this place for the glory of God. Let's do it, friends, for his namesake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful, good word. We thank you for revealing even to troubled hearts, this wonderful truth of who you are and what you have done and what you've called us to do. Father, sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes the trouble is so great that we grow weary and even paralyzed. Father, if our hearts are troubled today, would you allow this good work to make them glad again? Would you remind us, Lord, over and over and over again of all that we've been given in Christ and all the preparations that have been made and are being made even now. And Father, we pray that if there are those here today that they don't know this hope, if they, they're not certain about their future, Lord, would you open their eyes and help them to see the wonderful gift of salvation found in Jesus alone. And Father, as we wait for this place, as we look forward with hope, help us to be about your work. Help us to go forth in the power of your Holy Spirit and to be heralds of good news wherever we are and wherever we go, even to the ends of the earth. Because Lord, we have greater work to do. We have a gospel to preach. We have nations to engage. We have disciples to make. So Lord, would you help our hearts not to grow weary or troubled, but Lord, would you help us to hope in Christ and to be faithful to our calling. We pray this in his name. Amen.